Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. You can follow me on Twitter at FTCNHost. Thank you for listening. All right, in this episode, I welcome John Knowles, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Electromagnetic Dominance, the JED. Of course, this is AOC's official monthly publication, and most of our listeners and members of AOC, of course, will know John Knowles really well. Uh, he is a foremost subject matter expert in electromagnetic warfare and industry trends. Uh, so I thought it'd be a good time just to take a step back, relax, have a conversation with him. As always, you never know where these conversations are going to go. Uh, so we cover a lot of topics, but I hope that you enjoy the show. Uh, before we get to that, I just wanted to make one last plug for AOC Europe taking place next week uh, in Bonn, Germany, May 15th to 17th. I will be there and we will be broadcasting live during uh, each day uh, at different times at 10 a.m. to 12 noon on the East Coast, Monday and Tuesday, and 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. on Wednesday. And we are going to be bringing you speakers, subject matter experts, co-hosts, special guests, VIP guests uh, throughout the week, having discussions on all the, not only all the topics are we that we're talking about at AOC Europe, but also just in our community in general. So. Uh, we're going to be doing this through Twitter, and you can join the conversation on Twitter Spaces by going to my handle at FTCN Host. And if you follow me on Twitter, you will get a notification when we go live, and you just click on that link and you join the conversation. So, and you can do a lot once you're in that room. So, I uh, hope we get. Uh, I encourage everyone to follow me on Twitter and to take some time uh, to to join the show and participate in the conversation. We're really looking forward to trying this new initiative. So with that, let's turn to my conversation with John Knowles. All right, I am here with John Knowles, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Electromagnetic Dominance, the JED, uh, CAOC's official publication. Uh, he's been a regular guest on here on From the Crow's Nest uh, several times, but I always like to have him back on to kind of give us a pulse of what he's hearing uh, across the community. So John, welcome once again to From the Crow's Nest. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for having me back on. One of the hard things about AOC is is that uh, we always get so busy that we forget to talk for quite a bit of time. So, you know, we caught up last week and I invited you on the show and I appreciate you taking some time. And so we haven't really talked a lot recently about what's going on. So we're going to do it here on the podcast. So there's no pressure on, on uh, the live discussion that we're about to embark on. So I appreciate that. But uh, I wanted to get started. Obviously, this is a very busy time in the EMSO community around the world, in the U.S., especially when you look at Congress, uh, they're getting ready to move forward with the uh, defense budget process here in earnest. They've been having a lot of hearings, but now they're going to be starting markups. I, I've heard that the uh, in Congress, the, the House of Representatives, the Armed Services Committee is going to start markups. I think the uh, chairman's mark will be ready on May 16th. They're going to go through their process toward the end of May. 
The Senate is going to pick up their process here probably in early June. And so we've had a couple months here to digest the budget request that was sent to Congress from the Biden administration. Just, you know, to begin with your top level thoughts, what is some what are some of the things that you are looking at in the defense budget as it moves through this process? Well, it's not a different budget from previous years in many ways, right? It's a pretty standard. Some programs are funded. Most programs are actually funded pretty well. Some are not. One of the ones that jumped out at me was the Air Force appears to be defunding the IVUs program, the Viper uh, F-16 upgrade for EW. And that was kind of a surprise to me. It's, it's sort of a, a uh, issue for me, I guess, to see that we have, still don't have a midlife update for the F-16. Really, they're dealing with an ALR-56M, ALQ-131, 184 pods. They just haven't had, even though on the international side for FMS customers, they've got a solution for, that's a more modern solution, but it's uh, not really moving forward. And we've seen this in the past where sometimes these budget decisions are made with the understanding that, yeah, it's, it's not going to go through the congressional approval process that way. Um, it kind of puts a spotlight on uh, on an area where they're looking for congressional support for extra funding and kind of pushing that decision off to Congress as a way of getting their funding, but then also being able to present a budget that meets certain you know boundaries in terms of what they're spending. So it'll be interesting to watch. Um, kind of stepping back up. So, you know, one of the things that I saw, I was actually kind of surprised in a good way at how strong the budget was. There were, of course, programs that didn't get funded or decisions that were made that were head scratchers. But overall, I felt that given the environment that we were in, given the some of the, the, the competing challenges, that was a pretty strong budget request to at least start. Now, that still makes it DOA in Congress, but overall, it, it could have been it could have been a lot worse. And so I was actually pleased to see that there seemed to be at least a broad consensus that, OK, yeah, our national security, we, we have to continue to push that envelope forward a little bit from like the major muscle movements of the defense budget. You where do you see the priorities of the administration falling in terms of budget? And you know, what, what are some of the things that you could pick out um, as to say, hey, this is really where the administration, I think, is putting some of their priority, or this is some of the areas that we think the maybe the administration and, and Congress need to look into more because it doesn't seem to be funded in the budget as well. I think the programs that did well in the budget or, you know, got full funding, which is a lot of them, I, I'm beating up on the F-16 decision, but that's a legacy aircraft. So it's obviously not something that's uh, up there with your fifth gen fighters or something like that. But I would say that the, uh, you know, anything to do where you, you think you're going to use it in China or, you know, in the, in the ta Taiwan scenario. So your higher end fourth gen fighters. So again, F-18, for example, has a new start in there called ADVEW or ADVEW is what I'm calling it. I don't know what the actual acronym is, but advanced EW, their midlife update for the Super Hornets, where they're going to basically replace the LR-67 V3 and the ALQ-214 Decum with a new capability. In the budget, they really talk a little bit about integrating that much more closely with the AESA radar on the aircraft. Um, the radar itself is going through a wideband receiver upgrade. Not only is it an interesting uh, program in itself, but the lash up between the radar and the EW on a fourth gen fighter is is pretty interesting because that's really a, an, an incredible capability to bring in there, that, that high gain antenna. So you have, you have that going on. Uh, you have for the F-15EX, you have a full basically slate for the for the uh, EPAWS program, for the LSL protection system on that. So those programs are getting funded and they, I think they see those B-52 
being used much more in a sort of Taiwan defense scenario. You're seeing CWIP, the Navy, obviously on the surface side, has been spending a lot of money to make sure that the uh, battle groups can get closer, get into the fight a little more. You're seeing just just those types of investments. And that's where I see Compass Call, for example, same thing, you know, uh, aircraft that can contribute to that fight, the ground platforms moving forward, even though it's probably not so much part of the Taiwan scenario. But everything that needed to happen, I would say, if I had to make decisions that were based on a finite budget, everything that needed to happen is happening. Again, that one thing that sticks out to me is just the number of F-16s you have isn't getting funded. But everything else really is, is seems to be moving forward, both from a IR countermeasures capability. So Dayercom, for example, distributed aperture Aircom that started off as a Juans. That's now moving to a program of record. It's going to be on the UH-1 uh, wise, I think it is, the Venoms. The, the Marine Corps is investing in that. That's an important capability for them. So you're seeing survivability and offensive electronic attack capability moving forward. Another big one, or at least significant to me, is the stand-in attack weapon. SIAW, I think is what it is. And that is going to probably ultimately replace the harm in Argum. The interim capability is to get a Argum ER fitting fitted onto the F-35, but SIAW, CI, I don't know what you call it, but that, that program's going to move forward as a future mobile target weapon, hand or ground weapon to take out emitters, uh, things like that. So, so you're seeing, again, a lot of capability moving forward. Some of this is R&D. The production money is there for the things that are, again, for the, you know, for those programs that are entering production. So it's a, like you said, it's a very solid budget overall. Do you think that this represents a positive step in terms of our leaders in DOD, the administration, Congress, understanding the importance of MSO generally? Or is there anything to read into that in terms of just kind of the acceptance of the fact that, yeah, you know, basically if you're looking at where the fight is going to happen, whether it's a Taiwan Strait scenario or Ukraine, Eastern Europe scenario, it's going to happen in the electromagnetic spectrum. You're not going to be able to ensure or even assume mission success without superiority in the EMS. So do you think that that is being reflected in some of the decisions stakeholders are making? Yeah, I think that the demand signal from Indo-PACOM and UCOM are significant and I think I see that in the budget, even down to things like in the Air Force budget, very small stuff, but you're seeing in the R&D stuff, you're seeing the 350th Spectrum Warfare Wing taking stitches to the next level and really start to train people and how to use that and get that capability out there. And those types of initiatives that uh, that they're standing up down at the at Eglin of the 350th, those are really in support of, of, of uh, PIC, Indo-PACOM and UCOM. And so you're seeing that demand signal. So in that sense, it's a success. But in another way, I think we're kind of going back to that sort of, I don't know what you want to call it, management paradigm where we're mistaking materiel for everything we need. So we still don't, I think, have the organization and the leadership to make these decisions. How can I put it? We don't have that 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 steady strain on the demand signal uh, or on, on the bureaucratic support, basically, to make sure that programs don't get defunded for a year and they're refunded and things like that. So there's still a little bit of a shell game going on. So we're seeing a lot of money being spent. I just don't want us to mistake that for health. Over the past 30 years, we've seen that. 40 years, we've seen that happen. And again, my argument has always been without the leadership in the organizations, 
the ability to, in a future budget or in a budget crunch, because we don't know what's going to happen with the debt ceiling and all the negotiations going on the larger budget, if there's another, you know, sequestration or or some sort of, of uh, budget mechanism that really affects the DOD, EW is still set up to be a bill payer. And that to me is is the dangerous, I don't want to mistake good spending and healthy spending budgets with strategic relevance of MSO uh, being backed up, I guess I'd say. It seems that one of the things that we're hearing, we talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago, is that uh, on the readiness front, I guess you could put us under the classification of readiness is the workforce m- development, manpower, all the the EWOs or the the electromagnetic, depending on what classific, how you categorize them, what what uh, title you give them, the electronic warfare specialists in theater, all making sure that we have enough support in person to make some of these decisions, to advocate for some of these capabilities, whether it's in the COCOMs and the services, there seems to be a shortage across the board, and that kind of seems to get to some of your point of, of you're putting a lot of money into material, but not into the, 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 the people part. We've often talked about how difficult it is to figure out how EW programs are prioritized in budget, you know, in terms of finding them in the budget, whether they're nestled into other pe- you know, program elements and so forth. It seems to be even harder to figure out where we're at on the, on the workforce side. So how is that being addressed, can you get a sense how that's being addressed in the budget or is, or even just in, in the decisions of leadership of DOD, how are we addressing that readiness piece with the workforce and how can we better kind of keep tabs on that progress? So that's an interesting question because it is harder to find what I would, you and I would probably term a MSO professional because it's not just an electronic warfare officer, which used to be the easiest way to identify them in the past. It used to be people associated with a seat in a weapon system. And that is no longer the case, especially um, in the support roles that they play and that specialized knowledge. Again, that stitches program where they're training people to understand how to use, you know, that the biggest part, what's gonna make stitches successful isn't so much the capability. They've obviously invested in cloud and, and a lot of other resources to make stitches happen, but they understand that if people don't know how to use stitches and how to how to make it happen, then it's it's not going to work. So they've actually made an investment in training people. The Joint Electronic Warfare Center or Electromagnetic Warfare Center, same thing. They've always focused on training people. Um, the the capability is one thing, but the the know how is 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 really the special sauce. And and so that comes out of going back to your point about readiness. Is it's not just a professional thing; it's a training thing too. It's a it's realistic uh, training scenarios and things like that. And the ability to, to you know, gets into live virtual constructive and big joint environments. It's not going to all be live range work anymore. So it's a huge problem. And I'm not evading your question. I'm just trying to scope out the, the context of what we're talking about because it is, it is tremendously large. Uh, some of the definitions of the skills we need are still being defined because it's moving very fast, especially in the world with AI. And so I think that what I... I'm not seeing a whole lot right now in the budget. I'm not worried about it yet because I think they are still scoping the problem. When the um, GEMSO cross-functional team was around, they focused on personnel. That responsibility seems to have moved over to the um, GEMSO office at um, organization at U.S. Strategic Command. And so that responsibility, I think, is still there. But I will say this. If a joint organization like Stratcom tries to tell the services what they need, 
that's probably going to be a very <laughs> difficult thing. So the COCOMs are generating demand signals, as you point out. The services are, I think, still thinking in terms of what, you know, what do I need, not what does the COCOM need downrange. And I think that that is going to be something that needs to be addressed that I don't want to call it a disconnect quite yet because I it's there's still a lot to be seen in the next few years. But I would say that that's one of the more urgent issues in the community is because it just takes a long time to get people up to speed. And you can put a lot of people in the pipeline, but they're not 10, 15, 20 year career people that really have a ton of experience. They might have some knowledge, but that doesn't always translate into experience until you get some years under your belt and you've done exercises or fought in a live, you know, in a real war, things like that. And so, so I think we're, we're, we're trying to expand that pipeline, but we are very early days at the, at, at, at getting the right people trained and then getting that length of service that you need to really have a credible force there. Hello everyone, I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community, for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology and for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. 
no matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. When we talked when the EW, well, when the original EW strategy came out in, I guess, 2017, the time frame, you know, we were talking about like, well, the, the, it's, it's the service's responsibility, as you mentioned, to man, train, and equip. And we've had this discussion in the, our community that, you know, EMSO, though, is a uniquely joint function. Like, there is no ability to look at it from a individual service perspective and understand the problem, understand the solution. It's, it's uniquely joined. So is there, in your mind, is, is there a need to kind of remove, I wanna say remove, that, that sounds awful harsh, but uh, really make sure that the, the joint training aspect and, and, and almost the requirements on the services, does that need to come from DOD leadership outside of the combatant commands? Uh, because there is a manning piece to this that you know the Navy cannot actually solve the problem for manning Navy EW specialists in a joint operational environment for, for MSO specifically. So is there something that we need to add to our efforts or think about that kind of put that focus on this idea of joint training, joint readiness, joint EW MSO knowledge outside of the individual service uh, man training equip functions? Yeah, it, th- that was a big lesson coming, I think, out of Iraq was that the effects are joint in EW. They're, they're, you may be operating at 30,000 feet, but if you're jamming something on the ground, your effects, especially any, any spillover to friendly forces, any, any sort of fratricide that might go on, electromagnetic fratricide, you can't just think about your mission in the air and the target on the ground. You really have to understand where your fires are going, essentially. And again, the services might learn that over time, but that's really a knowledge that comes out of being in the EW coordination cell and the joint EW coordination cell. And so if it becomes extremely urgent, I think the pipeline almost has to go to the COCOMs. I know that sounds crazy to not, you know, to, to not have the services train, but, but that knowledge is just so unique. It's just like, you know, the photons that we're talking about are joint. And so, so what, are, what is, what is going to, you know, what, who's going to train if you're in the army, do you think about effects if you're working near the shoreline? You know, do you think about the effects on naval systems? If there are unmanned surface vessels or something like that in the littoral area, what are the effects? You know, what, what are you going to do? And so that question to me depends on how long we think we have to teach that skill. Um, but, but again, this is where I, I do find that in EW, the services have to find a better link to the COCOMs, to the operators, the actual warfighters, and and find some way to bridge those sort of institutional gaps because of the way that they're set up to view the world in the services. And it's not a knock on the services, but I, I've just, in, in my experience, when I've seen, you know, exercises play out, you know, when you step outside of the service, you have to make assumptions about how another service is contributing. And, you know, you're, 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 your ability to really understand how that other service capability or effect is influencing what you're trying to do. You're just making assumptions to some point. So I just think that it's interesting to think about how to make this more joint because we know it is. We, we, we say the words, 
but we still kind of rest in, you know, fall back into the in, in individual service perspectives of how to address the problem. And so it, it's, it's kind of an interesting conversation to continue to have. In keeping with that, getting back to the budget, you know, you wrote an article, I guess it was in the April JED, kind of covering some of the uh, Hask and Sask hearings. It seemed to me that there was a lot more conversation at the member level in the House and Senate on the importance of MSO than maybe in years past. Sometimes, you know, we've gone in our engagements in the Hill, it's been hard to get them to ask the right questions. And I felt like there were some questions that were kind of gave you the impression that, yeah, okay, Congress is starting to figure this out. Um, as we move into markups, what are some of the things that you're kind of watching for, not specific to program funding per se, but what are you kind of looking for from a congressional perspective, building on what you heard from the hearings? What are you kind of looking for in terms of uh, leadership from Congress on MSEL? I think the biggest one, and it was a bit of a surprise to me until I thought about it more, but in the in the hearings, uh, and the, these are the early hearings that came out or that happened around the time the budget first was released. So we're talking like late February, early March, both the, the House and Senate uh, subcommittees, not full SASC or HASC, were very concerned about spectrum auction, spectrum availability, and, and how the DOD is going to go about sh- uh, whether they share it or whatnot, but, but they're, uh, the, the, the sort of three, I can't remember the frequency range, but like three to 3.15 or something like that. Some very low frequency range because the telecommunications companies obviously would like to get that. It's very valuable spectrum. Not all spectrum is equal. Some has certain properties and then, and this would have put us right in the middle of some of uh, our radars and definitely in 5G, it would have really moved into, but will ultimately become part of our training infrastructure. And that's not very good. And so they want that Congress really wanted to make sure we didn't do an old fashioned spectrum auction where the, uh, where that spectrum is completely seated over. The DOD was trying to, they're, they're studying it right now. They're trying to figure out what they want to do or what way they want to proceed. So they can't say what they want to do. And they're being very careful not to create expectations, but Congress was extremely vocal about understanding that we cannot just give this off this spectrum away. One official, DOD official, kind of spoke up when when someone asked how much is this going to cost if the DOD had to vacate this spectrum, and the low end expectation would be 120 billion. That's just completely not realistic. That's you know that's that's a non-starter for the DOD. So Congress was very very focused on that. They really want to make sure that there is an informed decision and that all parts of the DOD especially those parts that deal with MSO, STRATCOM and others really weigh in on this because they have said that this is a problem depending on how we proceed. If it's a shared spectrum plan where where the DOD will share spectrum with commercial, we haven't done that before. So that in itself is probably where they're going to end up. But then it gets into the details of how do you implement that? Who's going to share what spectrum? Who has priority when you're sharing? It's going to be very, very challenging. Again, devil in the details to say spectrum sharing is great, but the devil's in the details. So that's probably the biggest one that I took out of the hearings. The second biggest one was probably just, again, having a cohesive sense of spectrum. Some members were confused by MSO and cyber kind of being the same thing, and they thought there was a duplication there. So there's still some education that probably has to go on for some members. 
I'm obviously not naming names, but their their level of interest is higher across the board than I've seen. There's some new members that are former military that that not necessarily MSO professionals, but have an interest in it as well. So I've never heard this many questions being asked in just a couple of hearings. It was it was extraordinary how much time they focused on MSO matters. Yeah, it's it's made a uh, hill engagement over the last few months a lot more interesting because we're fielding a lot more detailed questions. Questions that make you have to go back and like, okay, I actually need to research this and get the right answer to them. Uh, whereas in the past, you know, you spend a lot of time just kind of at that introductory level. So I've been impressed with that that level, and I'm looking forward to kind of seeing that continue through the the markups. So at this time, I wanted to kind of shift gears a little bit. You know, in a couple weeks, AOC is having one of its signature international events, AOC Europe, you know, as our listeners have already heard, you know, we're going to be there live streaming the the podcast during the week. I've, you know, and, and you've been gracious enough, even though you're not going to be in attendance, you're going to be joining me as a, as a co-host for some of that. And so we're looking forward to having some more informal open discussion. But one of the challenges of, you know, preparing the podcast for this show and, and thinking about AOC Europe is that you know, we spend a lot of time and we've spent a lot of time even in this episode, you know, talking about what's happening in the U.S. And so we now have to take that off, that hat off and put on their international hat and kind of see, okay, what's happening, particularly in Europe. It's not an area that I'm particularly comfortable in talking about. There's a lot, it's, it's, it's very different. And so I was wondering, you know, the theme of the conference is achieving multi-domain integration. And that's, we talk a lot about that around the globe and in the U.S. and so forth. Could you talk a little bit about where Europe is big picture when it comes to MSO and what are some of the the seams that we have to be paying attention to between how the U.S. thinks and how Europe thinks on MSO uh, moving forward so that we have strong partnerships on this in current uh, operational environments? So I think the first thing I'd start off with, and this is not news to many Europeans, but it's still probably not top of mind for many Americans is we do not have a common terminology. So the Europeans and NATO specifically have a set of terms for uh, for EW. And that partly reflects, I think, their materiel, the way that they uh, they tend to focus. Uh, historically, they focused more on self-protection EW rather than offensive EW, like uh, like ironic attack or something like that. And so they have a set of, and NATO has a set of terms that that is very, it's, the doctrine is, is I think, reflects uh, the way traditional doctrine looks. I don't want to get into big doctrine conversation right now because I think I'll put everybody to sleep. But the idea that that I, I always kind of break it down to eyes, sword, and shield, and they think about it EW that way. So when I attack, I'm using my sword and I'm being offensive. When I am protecting my platform, I'm using my shield and I'm being defensive and I'm using EW defensive role. And then again, situational awareness, my eyes. In the U.S., I feel like our doctrine is much, uh, NEW specifically, is very technically oriented. So we have terms that crack up the Europeans sometimes, like defensive electronic attack. When we're talking about counter ID, they look at that and like, how can you have defensive electronic attack? And army people are like, that makes perfect sense to me over here in the U.S. <laughs> the Europeans get kind of a chuckle out of that sort of Pentagon soup of words. And then uh, when we talk about, you know, self-protection, like for us, self-protection EW gets blended because when you get a platform like the F-35 or like this attitude program for the F-18, that's going to combine offensive and defensive functions for the platform. 
Whereas the Europeans, again, are, you know, to them, self-protection EW is, is primarily in the, in the defensive sphere, as is electronic protection. So anti-jam, protecting your access to the spectrum, I think that fits fundamentally in their concept of, of electronic defense or that, that, kind of, that kind of idea of defense, that shield. So again, we, we don't have alignment on the way we talk, and that is problematic in planning. It's very problematic in operations when things are happening fast and everybody has to understand each other. And this came up in Libya back, you know, 10 years ago. And it, it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't fatal for anyone, but it, it, it caused a moment at AOC Europe in 2014 or 15. There was a, a German Air Force general who talked about a term got relayed on a radio and it got a few people confused, <laughs> guess put it that way when we talk about electronic attack. So that piece of it, I think is still probably one of the biggest, you know, if you can't have a common language, you're not gonna get too far. And it is, the US continues to use a specific set of terms, not just in EW, but the services, you know, one person's helicopter EW is another person's aircraft survivability equipment. So it just, there's just a lot of, of, of problems there. But from a conceptual standpoint, uh, or, you know, from an from a investment standpoint and things like that, I think NATO in the European nations, especially the European side of NATO, they are making investments now in airborne electronic attack. They're about, a number of them are going to buy uh, airborne electronic attack capability going forward. They're making a significant investment in their industry to get to the next level. Again, the April issue, we talked a little bit about Carmenta and some of the future studies that they're doing that will probably evolve into full R&D programs coming down the road. And they have this European Defense Agency, which by the way, has come over to the US recently or is going to and do a little more coordination and collaboration. I think that the, you're seeing Europe behave in a more coordinated way. So Carmenta is not just a, it's a, it's a self-protection uh, EW suite that they're trying to develop. Again, early phases right now, but that would be for both transport aircraft and rotary wing. But it wouldn't be some multilateral, you know, four countries getting together to create a consortium the way they did for the Eurofighter or the Tiger helicopter program or something like that. This would be Europe wide. Uh, it'd be a suite that many Europeans and it's being funded. Seed funding is coming from European Defense Agency. So it's behaving in a more sort of DARPA like role. You're seeing that coordination show up and you're seeing a number of industry players realize that they can get a piece of that program and use that to develop know-how. So you're seeing just this, it's not just one prime, it's it's like 10 companies in Carmenta. Um, and same thing with a number of other of these little programs are ED, IDP. They're these, these mostly studies right now, but some of them will evolve. And so you're seeing Europe behave in a much more coordinated way, which is great because they have a tremendous amount of duplication in their defense industrial base, not just in EW, but really in like, you know, ground vehicles and other areas like that. So the number of countries that make ground vehicles in Europe is huge. And, and Europe has always thought about those from a economic a work and an economy perspective, as well as a military capability. So that's one other way to look at it is there's a lot more coordination within Europe going on. And then again, very early days of coordinating. I, I, I don't think EDA, the European Defense Agency, is really coordinating with much with the U.S. in the past. So you have that aspect, and then you have just the general investment in in defense going on in Europe. So Finland has joined the number of countries. You know, two percent of GDP used to be your you know target, and now a number of countries are well above that, and that's in Europe, and that's a uh, again 
testament to the situation in Ukraine and probably some political pressure from the U.S. over the past decade. And if you go back to 2014, I know we're sort of 10 years into Crimea. Next summer will be 10 years of the invasion of Crimea and the early days. But that event, 2014, really stimulated a lot of planning in NATO. And you're seeing it takes a long time, but it's coming to fruition in the next, you know, five, 10 years. So you're seeing a number of things go that way. Do you see a trend then that it, it will become easier? You know, when we started talking about this, you mentioned, you know, makes it difficult to plan because of different terminology and so forth. Do you see this kind of trend that's, you know, coming through the, the European Defense Agency and some of their EWF efforts, you mentioned Carmenta, do you think that this will eventually lead to smoother planning between Europe and the U.S. when it comes to MSO, you know, you're no longer dealing with a bunch of different multilateral programs or efforts. You're you're dealing with it more almost bilaterally in the sense of the European defense force and the or NATO and then U.S. Do you see the planning piece becoming a little bit easier down the road because of some of the changes, uh, some of the evolution that's taken place over the last few years in in Europe? I think that's going to largely depend on the geopolitical environment. So right now, NATO is very unified because of what's happening in Ukraine, and that's right on Europe's doorstep. And so the effect on NATO, if Ukraine fell, would be tremendous. And you would actually probably see maybe a slightly different posture from Eastern Europe versus Western Europe, for example, things like that. But for the most part, Ukraine has been, right with Russia, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been a very unifying effect in boosted budgets, and everybody's gotten very serious about defense. That if and when the Russia question is solved, if Russia collapses or something happens where where Ukraine settles down, I'm not even sure a peace plan would would solve that if it left Russia intact because or let Russia intact in Ukraine or Russia wanting is going to strategically keep trying to go after Ukraine because it needs that physical buffer. It thinks, but the Next question after that becomes much stickier for NATO, and that's China. And that's where I think China, going back to your previous podcast last week, which I thought was fantastic, the idea that China is always looking to create fissures. It's always looking for divisions that it can exploit. Russia does it too, but China does it really, really well, and it can exercise trade as a weapon. I think that's something that NATO is going to have to think through. So I don't want to say it's all you know, roses in the future for NATO because solving one problem or dealing with one challenge, it's not the same. China's going to pose a whole new set of alliance challenges for NATO and we might go backward. I wanted to get to that in the last few minutes that we have here, you know, talking about Europe is one thing, but when you get into into PACOM, you still have a NATO element, but you also have other partners and a a different uh, partner environment than you do over in Europe. What are some of the lessons or what are some of the things that you're looking at in terms of how the U.S. is approaching its international partnerships and work in, in the Indo-PACOM region, obviously with the, the Taiwan Strait and, and, and questions about the future of conflict with China? What are some of the lessons that we're, we should be learning or what are some of the different uh, you know, seams that we need to be paying attention to that maybe aren't as easily addressed from a, you're looking at it from US and Europe. I think the US is gonna have to think about anchoring a different kind of alliance, obviously, against China. I don't think that for Europe, Russia is the near at hand threat. And so that brings us together with them. But I do think 
to your point, you know, there's going to be a different coalition of probably Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Australia, others in that region. And the challenge there is that region has never had anything like NATO. And so when we think about how we would work EW with our allies in Europe through NATO, I mean, we've had, it's going to be what, 75 years, something like that coming up very soon. And that's a long time to develop all those little pieces of coordination that you need to have, because it's not going to, you can't do that ad hoc. It requires a lot of training and coordination and, and, and a number of things. And that doesn't even exist in Asia Pacific region for us. So we have specific allies that we're very close with, like Australia. We have some that we're closer with, Japan, South Korea. But molding that into a coalition is going to be way more challenging in the electromagnetic spectrum the fight in the electromagnetic spectrum than it would be in Europe right now with a very, I think, a much more challenging opponent with a more powerful economy. Well, with that, uh, unfortunately, we've, we've uh, run out of time. So I wanted to you know, thank you for joining me again here on From the Crow's Nest. And, I'll, and uh, but I'm sure we'll continue this conversation here in a couple of weeks from AOC Europe. Um, again, we'll be live streaming during the uh, AOC Europe at, at various times. So check out the AOC website, crows.org, for more information on that. John, I do appreciate having you back on the show. And it's always good to talk with you and look forward to talking with you again in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Ken. I always enjoy our conversations and look forward to the next time. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank my guest, John Knowles from the Journal of Electromagnetic Dominance for joining me. Also, don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. But that's it for today. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at FTCN Host and watch out for more details on our live stream from AOC Europe, May 15th to 17th. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.